Good morning, Father Daniel. How are you doing today? Morning, John. Doing great. Thanks be to God. Excellent. Well, today our topic is about creation, both visible and invisible creation. But before we do that, Father Daniel, would you mind rehashing a little bit about the Creator's being before we go into the being of creation? Absolutely. I'd be happy to, John. Though I'm a, I'm a little nervous to do it. I have lots of great Thomist friends uh-huh. who are going to jump all over me for saying this incorrectly. Well, but, if they can do it better, they can start a better podcast, and I'll listen to <laughs> there it. There you go. So, uh, as John has, has mentioned, you know, before, I'm a Greek Catholic priest, and I'm going to come at this from uh, my understanding from the, the Greek theological tradition. But <clears throat> uh, in the icons of our Lord, we have a unique uh, halo there. You see the Greek, uh, the Greek words, or the Greek word, Oon, which means the existing one, he who exists. This comes to us from uh, Moses' conversation uh, with the divinity in the burning bush, I am. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so God tells us that he is truly the only one with existence. Mm-hmm. God's existence is grounded in himself. He needs nothing outside of himself to exist. There's no more existence uh, outside of God, really. He is the fullness of existence. <clears throat> so creation alongside that uh, is this kind of pale shadow, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's not as if God has taken something from himself, uh, diminishing himself when he creates uh, ex nihilo. But there's some kind of an analogy between the two types of existences. God being the fullness of existence, pure, uh, total, undefiled. He has it all. And he wants to share that existence with something that doesn't have any existence in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So over the abyss of nothingness, God creates us. And so now we do have a type of, uh, a type of life, a type of existence. Again, it's not God's life per se, Mm -hmm. but analogously we can see that they're related. And that analogy, I believe is how St. Thomas in his analogy of being talks about how we kind of participate in the life of God. That's how I understand it as well. So Father Daniel, you shared that moment of sacred scripture when Moses sees the burning bush. Uh, He hears a voice of God call out to him and he speaks with God and he covers his face. He takes off his sandals and he asks, what is your name? so that they know who sent me. Right. And the Lord's response is, I am who I am. Mm-hmm. He doesn't name himself in the standard way, like I would say, well, I'm John. Mm-hmm. I am who I am. Is it fair to say that God is identifying himself as being itself? I think he is. He's, he's saying to Moses, he's also just commanded to remove his sandals, uh, that, listen, you're encountering uh, the fullness of being. You're encountering life itself, the author of life itself. Mm-hmm. And this ought to humble us in a very profound way, right? Yeah. Man feels himself to be very substantial in the flesh as he walks around this earth making decisions and talking about things and doing what we're doing today. But in the face of existence itself, mm-hmm. we're humbled. So this discussion about being, you uh, said in Greek, ha'an, 
the existing one. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in Greek, ontos mm-hmm. is being. So mm-hmm. this discussion we're having about being is a discussion of ontology. Mm-hmm. And this probably might feel like a really lame and esoteric way to start a podcast where we want to talk about animals and angels, but this is why it's important. Um, the beginning of modernity is actually a shift in how we think about ontology. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking about modernity, there are two events that I'm thinking of. One is the Protestant Reformation. The other is the secular enlightenment. They both have philosophical roots in something called nominalism. And let me kind of explain the two tracks you can go on if you want to consider being and what being is. This is the classical approach in our consideration of being that you see really clearly in St. Augustine in the Confessions, but also in Thomas Aquinas in the Summa. When they begin with being, they begin with the uncreated. Mm-hmm. They begin with the absolute, with uh, uh, similar to Plato, in a sense. They begin with that which is immutable, infinite, unchanging, i.e., God. Mm-hmm. Um, that God is being itself. And then they ask the question, how does creation fit within the uncreated? So we begin with God, and then we think, well, how does the existence of that which he makes fit within him? As opposed to how modern philosophers and theologians think, they begin with that which is created, mm-hmm. with that which is contingent, which, with that which is secondary. And they then establish that and say, how can we fit God in that? And this creates philosophical problems. So, for instance, uh, John Calvin, a Protestant reformer, and St. Augustine as well as St. Aquinas, both Catholic theologians, have, I believe, equally strong views of the sovereignty and the providence of God. But because Aquinas and Augustine begin with God and have this classical framework, they see human freedom as existing within divine freedom. Whereas Calvin actually begins with human assumptions about the freedom of the will. And he then sees God as this sort of competitor. Mm. So if, to break this down more, the way that we tend to think about the world in the modern era is to see God as one being among many's. Indeed. Among many. <clears throat> right. So whatever sovereignty God has is a point away from my sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Whatever space God occupies in his omnipresence is space I don't occupy. So we see God's being as somehow competitive with mm-hmm. the being of creation rather than its source and that which actually makes space for creation. Yeah, it's almost as if, if you can conceive of it spatially, right? Uh huh. There's a limited amount of space, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. here's creation space here, and here's God's space or matter here, and the two cannot coexist because they're fighting for space. They're fighting for that room, so to speak. Yeah. Whereas I think you're absolutely right, the classical Christian conception of God uh, begins with a strong line of demarcation mm-hmm. between the uncreated mm-hmm. and created. That's really how they conceive of God. Everything that is not 
uh, created, we put it on that other side of the other side of the line, mm-hmm. and we conceive of that as God. Mm-hmm. And so, we have the possibility then of God's both utter transcendence, because He's entirely uh, what creation is not. Mm-hmm. And the possibility of his imminence within creation, because he's not competing for space. That's right. So the creator is present in creation precisely because creation is present in him. So the Apostle Paul, when he's speaking to the men and women at Athens, other mm-hmm. Alpagus, he quotes their own poets. He says, as your own poets have said, in him, God, we live and move and have our being. Right. Beautiful. So fancy philosophical way of coming back and quoting a scripture. But when we talk about the analogy of being with St. Thomas Aquinas, um, there's another point by it as well. So the way that the classical Catholic tradition understands creation is as if it is one large pyramid or as one large ladder. Hmm. And these are these when we use the phrase analogy of being. These are some of the premises that theologians like St. Aquinas and St. Augustine are asserting. First off, if God is being, everything that he creates has analogy to him. Mm-hmm. That it is both unlike him mm-hmm. and like him. Now, Thomas Aquinas argues that in an analogy, there is always a greater dissimilarity mm-hmm. because, of course, God is infinite and we are not. And there are other other factors in that as well. But nonetheless, everything in creation does possess within itself some sort of likeness towards God. And that is why it exists. But as you move up higher up the ladder of being, and now we're not talking about God capital B being, but lowercase b beings. Mm -hmm. So as you move up the ladder being from dirt to grass to rock to trees to bird to plant to person to angel to higher angel up the hierarchy which we'll get to later things become more like god mm-hmm. in their essence as you move up so in this way of seeing creation everything has a sort of um iconic function and yeah. that it communicates something about god the economy of God's inner life or the economy of God's interaction with us, which I think is a really fun way of viewing creation. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Father Daniel? No, it's true. It's just, it's absolutely remarkable. It, it takes what might just be this kind of neutral thing. You could, you could look at anything in creation and say, well, <clears throat> it just has to be there for it to function. Well, that's true. There is a, uh, practical necessity probably for a lot of things but it's beyond that too there's also how it images forth as you've been saying john something about god Mm -hmm. Uh, in our relationship to it we're going to see it's not just as it stands alone but how does man relate to it how do the angels relate to it Mm -hmm. um whether we're talking about a stone or a tree or uh mathematics all of these things participate uh, in some kind of communication about God to a greater or lesser degree. It's just incredible. That's right. I think about the um, Platonic and Aristotelian point that the visible makes known the invisible. Mm. That um, God is not reductionistic. 
No. That there's always a deeper meaning to everything. Peter Kreeft talks about this in his book on angels and demons, mm-hmm. which we'll be circling back to in a moment. That if you think that creation is simply practical, go to a zoo mm-hmm. and just look at how extravagant and entertaining and shocking the things that God has made are. Absolutely. Um, I don't think anyone could go to a zoo and not think God is creative. No. Unless they're a really boring person, maybe. But that's a reflection on ourselves, not on God. If you can go to Glacier National Park or a zoo, um, really, honestly, your own backyard if you have one, and not see um, not only a scientific diversity, but an artistic diversity. Absolutely. And, you know, it goes beyond biological beings, too, into the realm of uh, mathematics and music and art and all these kinds of things. Um, God isn't uh, isn't just the ground of being, as we call him, for biological creation. But mm-hmm. as we're going to talk about it, the, the whole of cosmology, uh, all the laws of creation, all these incredible built-in things that, that we see uh, somehow participate in this. And it is truly extravagant. I think that's a great word for it. That's right. So... Um... We're about to jump into the angels, but before we do, we're going to do one more thing with the zoo. Peter Kreeft, in his book on angels and demons, he talks about how if you go to the zoo and um, you find, I don't know, pick a random animal, a sloth. Fascinating. Mm. I don't so much um, because laziness personally irks me. I think I'm too high strung. But you like sloths. But then you see a monkey. Mm. And the monkey is more active and more complex. And then you look at the tiger. And the tiger is not only more complex but more beautiful. Mm-hmm. That biologically, the world is not sparsely but densely populated. Right. And the physical world is densely populated not only in terms of the number of species but in the diversity of species. Um, I mean, I'm not God, so I can't really understand his design but i think we could presume that if god wanted to he could do with far less and he could make things far less boring right because nothing created from a logical standpoint is necessary right it's unnecessary it's contingent everything that exists exists because of god's preference Mm -hmm. there's nothing compelling him there is no angel saying i quit unless you make a baboon Right. God made baboons because he wanted baboons. So you look at the biological world and forestry and all. I'm not a scientist, but think of all the diversity of earth sciences we have. And I'm not going to make myself sound stupid, but all the sciences we have. Mm-hmm. And the just amazing complexity of what's there. Now we jump to human beings. Mm-hmm. As human beings, we are not only material creations. We are also immaterial. Mm-hmm. Aristotle uh, refers to us as rational animals. And by rational, he means not only thinking. Rationality has a deeper spiritual quality to it mm-hmm. in ancient language. So we as human beings, we know that we are not reducible to an animal species. I hope everyone knows that or else uh, we'll treat one another like animals. Maybe some people do think that and that would make sense of the news right now. (laughs) Point aside, we know from human experience that we are not reducible 
to our biological ontology, that we are more than that. Right. So we as human beings are this bridge figure between the seen and the unseen. Mm -hmm. We have sayings like this, like the eyes are the window of the soul. Mm -hmm. We understand with friends or spouse or loved ones that there is a deep eternal quality to each of us. So here's Peter Crave's question. If we are the end of the seen realm and the beginning of the unseen realm, Mm -hmm. would the unseen realm be more or less diverse than the seen realm? Which, coming from my Protestant evangelical background, is really exciting because this means that, so now we are finally transitioning to angels. Mm. As we think about the angelic realm, we're not thinking about just kind of a few random servants that God, quote, just gets stuff done with. Right. But we're thinking about an entire spiritual realm of highly sophisticated beings who are more distinct and more unlike one another mm-hmm. than, let's say, a, a tiger is from a lion. Right. They're not relying upon physical differences uh, to differentiate between them, right? Uh-huh. And we can talk about the uh, the ranks of angels, which, uh, though I did a term paper on the Unisius, the Areopagite, who talks about this, uh, his work uh, is built upon by, by St. Thomas. But nevertheless, I, I don't understand the nine ranks. They're maybe inexhaustible. Yeah. But even uh, amongst individual angels, because they're pure spirit, it is their, uh, so to speak, their identity is is built up in their purpose, in their rationale, their pure thought. And so it takes on a whole new concept, mm-hmm. uh, diversity does. So let's just quickly <clears throat> trace some things that the the Catholic Church teaches about angels, and then we can jump from what it teaches about angels to what it entertains about angels. <laughs> because there is a difference. Not every right. pious, compelling, beautiful theory of angels is dogmatically binding. And the reason I say this is sometimes someone, even a very well-educated person in the church, can be really attached to a particular image of the angelic world Mm -hmm. and latch on to it as dogma and tell other people they're heretics if they see differently. That's not true. We are now entering into a realm of theology that requires maybe even more humility than others because of how mysterious and fascinating it is. So I have the catechism here at my desk, as I always do. By the way, as an aside, if anyone is curious about anything we say, wondering if we're crazy or uh, wanting to fact check us or interested in wanting to learn more, pretty much everything we say is found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Mm. So it's a good resource. But what does the Catechism of the Catholic Church teach about angels? Well, it teaches that they are spiritual beings, mm-hmm. not physical beings. Um, it teaches that they are intellect and will, and that they are created by God, and that they serve God. And that's about it. <laughs> it's not uh, much there. Yeah, we do have more biblical data on what some of the roles and functions are that they fulfill at God's service. Mm-hmm. We do get uh, clear images in Scripture of there being a diversity within angelic ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about all. 
Mm-hmm. The, the church teaches dogmatically about angels. Now, you want to move down from the realm of dogma to liturgy. Our prayer life with angels is extremely active, uh, all the way from a little boy or girl praying their guardian angel prayer, which, right. yes, we do teach and affirm the existence of guardian angels, as does Jesus. Right. Um, but also within our um, liturgy of the Holy Eucharist, especially, Father Daniel, your Byzantine liturgy. I'm yeah. thinking about the cherubic hymn. We see right. ourselves as not only human beings at one degree, but at an even deeper degree as Catholic Christians mm-hmm. who participate in service of Jesus Christ. We see ourselves as inhabiting an angelic world where in one sense we're kind of operating on their wavelength and we're part of the things that they are doing. Yeah, I think that's really important to recognize, and the liturgy certainly is an aid with this. The world is not uh, what we see, simply, straightforward material reality, Mm -hmm. and then the spiritual world is somehow an addition to it, somehow almost external, and if you just believe it, then we know, okay, yeah, there's some things outside this. That's a, it's a really kind of bifurcated, kind of broken understanding of the cosmos, which is what we're talking about today, right, John? That's right. What we need to uh, come to terms with is the fact that uh, this world, uh, this cosmos exists as a united whole. Uh, There's one, uh, he's actually an Eastern Orthodox priest and writer who talks about it as uh, moving from the concept of a two-story universe in which God's kind of in the upper floor and, and the angels are up there spiritual realities and then mm-hmm. a man is on the the downstairs right the uh, the main floor he says no we we need to conceive of it as a single story universe that's uh, right this is medieval cosmology you can read all kinds of fabulous authors on this c.s lewis certainly wrote a lot about this mm-hmm. where uh we exist in this physical world, and yet this physical world cannot explain itself. It takes the angelic world, the invisible world, the spiritual world, in order to make sense of the physical world. Yeah. Um, so having that kind of medieval cosmology is, is just key. I agree. There's a really uh, influential book. It's titled A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. I don't know a lot of people who have read the whole whole thing, and those mm-hmm. who do, I find like to brag about it a lot because they've read 780 pages of somewhat mm. dull philosophy. That being said, Secular Age asks a real profound question, and the question is, um, why do the conditions of belief in which you and I live, Father Daniel, differ so much from people before the Enlightenment or before the Reformation? And one of the factors it looks at is... How did the angelic realm begin become reduced to something artistic or literarily fascinating, mm-hmm. but not lived? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the points he would make is that our fascination with um, literature on angels, it's not an unhealthy thing, but I think what it realizes is that there's a sense of loss, that um, we inhabit what he refers to as a disenchanted universe, mm-hmm. that we do have a distant memory of of the universe being one story, as you put it. Mm-hmm. But because we have become so one-dimensional in our thinking, we don't know how to access it. And I do believe that one of the solutions to living a fully orbed human life is the liturgy. Absolutely, 
yeah, we have liturgies dedicated to uh, various saints and, and uh, forgive me, my phone's ringing and distracting me here. Turn that off. Uh, we have them, uh, liturgies dedicated to saints and angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michaelmas, we can all think of. It's a beautiful uh, feast that we're coming up on here on the Eastern calendar. So the church is telling us, look to uh, the liturgy as, as a way to understand, not just understand, but participate in this uh, richer universe. Mm-hmm. One of the things that fascinated me coming into the Catholic Church is how many of the um, spiritual authors mm. urge as just common sense advice, ask your guardian angel for help. That's true. Constantly. Mm-hmm. Daily. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that the angels uh, really help with is uh, we've we've lost our sense of vocation, our sense of uh, what is man's um, what is man's rationale, what is his reason for existence. The angels exist in this sphere, kind of par excellence, right? Mm-hmm. That is what they do because they're not like us uh, who are unfolding in time. We're kind of waffling between various uh, ideas and passions that we want to to follow. No, the angels do the thing that they're meant to do. They have purpose. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another thing that we can look to the angelic realm to help us with is their life of purpose, their existence, which they're utterly dedicated to, un- unwavering from. You know, there's an Eastern theologian and a Western theologian who I think have very profound insight into angelic ontology, like what angels are. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they have deep insight into anthropological ontology, what human beings are. Mm. In the East, um, St. John of Damascus, Mm -hmm. and in the West, St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm. And the similarities and dissimilarities between human beings and angels shed light on the other. So this is a good segue in our last couple of minutes to talk about the fall mm. of angels and what motivates that, what that consists of. Um, and we're not going to try to explain it in full. We'll come back to this in a later episode about the fall. Mm-hmm. But St. John of Damascus, he argues that... Um, Angels are incapable of repentance because um, they are they're immortal, they are immaterial, immaterial. So right. they are not capable of change mm-hmm. in the way that we are, mm-hmm. because you and I are subject to time. Mm-hmm. As human beings, we are subject to change, and that's actually a gift. This is one reason why, and I'm looking ahead to the fall, but this is one reason why the Cappadocian Fathers, I believe St. Gregory of Nyssa, refers to death as a severe mercy of God Mm -hmm. because the temporality of our life and um, the fact that life on this earth does not last forever Mm -hmm. is what gives us the opportunity to change and to repent, which is a luxury not given to angels. St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, stresses a further point as well, which is that angels do not know by analysis. They don't jump from premise to premise like you and I do. They don't have to reason. Mm-hmm. Angels know with immediacy. Yes. They know by direct, immediate 
intuition. So uh, we oftentimes have to live life from uncertainty mm-hmm. and, uh, and accept responsibility, even in those areas of life where we have to rely on estimation. Angels don't rely on estimation. Angels rely on pure, direct knowledge. So the Catholic Church does affirm as fact some fall within the angelic realm. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Catholic Church believes that that fall occurred from at every level of the angelic hierarchy. Right. Now, obviously, we're not saying every angel fell. That would be bad. (laughs) We don't teach that. But nonetheless, whatever the angelic hierarchy is, um, if we're taking the hierarchy of St. Dionysius and St. Thomas Aquinas, which why not? Because they're brilliant and that uh, that scheme is really fun and interesting. If you take that scheme, uh, angels fell from all nine ranks, mm-hmm. and they did so deliberately. Scripture tells us that the motive of the chief angel's fall, Satan, who was one of the highest angelic beings, that his motivation was envy. Right. Most theologians have looked at that verse in wisdom, and they've read it not as envy of God, but as envy of mankind. Particularly, I believe, of the Holy Virgin. That's right. So, um, at one level, the Virgin Mary individually, and that interpretation makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And within that, humanity in general. Why? Because to angels, it was revealed that human beings, though from the from the earth lower order yeah though we're from the lower order nonetheless we both have one foot or both feet firmly planted in the heavenly realm as well Mm -hmm. so we already get this share in the spiritual realm although Mm -hmm. we are at a certain level animal Mm -hmm. but not only that but god condescended to elevate man male and female into the divine economy Mm -hmm. through the fact that God would become human. Exactly. In Jesus Christ, which is a lot of uh, theology to throw out there. We're going to circle back to these things in later episodes, but here's what I would like to say. Um, When we talk about the fall of angels and when it occurred, here's the problem. Angels are not temporal beings. So we can look at our fall as a historic or prehistoric event, but when we talk about the fall of angels, uh, if you look at like the fourth Lateran Council, the Catholic Church intentionally uses the language at, of deliberate, but it doesn't specify a lot about time. Mm-hmm. And this is where the church actually develops into multiple theories. Mm-hmm. Now, one is certainly the majority theory, and I don't want to act like it's it's not the majority theory. The common way we conceive of in the West is that all angels conspired and rebelled together. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes a lot of good theological sense. At the same time, in Genesis 3 through 11, we do see sort of a series of falls. Yeah. That there are a series of falls within the human race Mm -hmm. that further um, dehumanize us from what God intended. Mm -hmm. And um, some Jewish and Christian theologians have seen that as a series of angelic falls. Now, I just simply want to say there's plausibility for both. 
Right. And in the end, it really doesn't change our prayer life. It doesn't change in the ministry of an exorcist. Um, one would fit with Lord of the Rings more. So maybe that's something to factor in. Uh, but uh, as we get into the angelic realm, there's just a lot of mystery, and I find that interesting. And Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Yes, we live in an incredible cosmos that is full of life, seen and unseen. And the more ignorant we are of the unseen element, the more subject we are to uh, spiritual temptation. I think that's a huge issue for modern man, that in terms of talking, uh, talking about fallen cause, fallen elements within the cosmos, we could place a greater emphasis on, which is just uh, the presence of fallen angels, their demonic activity, and how they can be overcome through uh, all the means that God gives us in the church. So. It's a fascinating subject. Father Daniel, would you like to recommend any resources for people who are curious about cosmology, seen and unseen? Yeah, I mean, I think the works of uh, a number of the church fathers, mm-hmm. um, you could talk about the works of uh, Gregory of Nyssa, um, St. Basil's going to talk about some of this. Uh, St. Maximus the Confessor. Uh, you go later to more medieval period, of course, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. Um, so He's nicknamed the Angelic Doctor. The Angelic Doctor, right. He builds a lot of his uh, cosmology on that of St. Dionysius the Areopagite. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's just you know incredible resources out there. I definitely think St. Thomas is, is great to go to probably first because he has maybe the most ordered. Uh, he has the advantage of writing from a later period. He, That's he right. builds upon the Church Fathers. So that'd be phenomenal. Of course, you mentioned Peter Kreeft. There's some great modern uh, theologians talking about this kind of stuff, too. Yeah, Peter Kreeft talks about this in multiple places, but he has a short little super clear, simple book devoted entirely to this, which is Angels, Parentheses, and Demons mm. by Peter Kraft. I recommend that book. If someone wants to think about this from an imaginative perspective, mm. I would honestly recommend nearly anything written by Lewis or Tolkien. Two Absolutely. men who were deeply entrenched in, in the spiritual t- tradition and just had such artistic wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, C.S. Lewis wrote a series... Um, sometimes called the Space Trilogy, sometimes called the Ransom Trilogy. Mm. The three books are Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. They're incredible And one of the fascinating things is you oftentimes look at human characters from the perspective of angels. Right. So earlier in the podcast, I talked about how um, angelic theology, although speculative, is actually practical Mm -hmm. because it helps us reflect on what do we mean about ourselves when... when we say that human beings are both spiritual and material, well, what is a spiritual mm-hmm. being? And, and what is the significance of the body? And C.S. Lewis is someone who really toys with uh, angelic and human interaction in a very Catholic and helpful way mm. for us to think about what makes us distinct as human beings and about the beauty and richness of the heavens and earth that God has made. It's incredible. Thank God for these uh, basically contemporary authors who can who can speak with this medieval mindset still. That's right. Uh, to us as moderns, we have a great debt to them. Awesome. Well, thank you, Father Daniel. My joy, John.